we set out for Jerusalem. Thousands were heading there for the festival of Passover. Peace, Barabbas. Good morning, Hope Ames, and happy Palm Sunday. Hosanna! 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 Maybe you don't know any idea what I'm talking about. Maybe you hear me say Hosanna, and you're like, Hosanna. So, you know. Maybe you hear Hosanna and you say, God bless you, because um, you thought that it meant something else. But Palm Sunday is a big deal, and maybe sometimes we pass over it and we get to the rest of Holy Week way too quickly. Maybe we pass over Holy Week way too quickly in general, we get right to Easter, and we forget about the journey that Jesus takes us on. That was a clip from uh, kind of a docu-series, if you will, uh, on the History Channel a while ago called Son of God. I mean, it definitely dramatizes some of the things in the Palm Sunday scene, uh, but I, I do like it. I, I like that it allows us to imagine a little bit. I like that it shows how many different faces in the crowd that Jesus and his disciples see. I think that it's important for us to look around, to see the faces in the crowd, to see where we fit in in that crowd, to see who we are in this story. You are in this story. And Jesus has a way of surprising the people in the crowd. He's not who they expected him to be. For the religious officials and the Roman guards, Jesus is certainly not who they expect him to be. He's coming in in triumph, but he's not a soldier. He's not there to fight them. And then also to the revolutionaries who are there too. He's not necessarily satisfying what they want right at the moment either. He's surprising people. He is not who they expected. So they're cheering for him. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And we're going to talk about what that means in just a second. But it says that the entire crowd is in an uproar. They're all amazed by this Jesus figure and at the end of the Bible reading today, you just heard this question. Who is this? Who is this? Have you asked that question lately? 
Who's Jesus? It's hard to read the gospel accounts and not ask that question because you go into reading the Bible and you have your expectations of who Jesus is. And he will surprise you. And I want to start by saying this today. If you have not been surprised by Jesus lately, you might want to check to see who you're following. Jesus will surprise you. Jesus will surprise you about himself. Jesus will surprise you about who he puts in your life. Jesus will surprise you about where he calls you. Jesus will surprise you about how big your heart can grow and how compassionate you can be and how big of a difference you can make in this world. Jesus will surprise you. It's not what you expected, but it's a good surprise. I hope that you feel surprised when you come into a church family like this. Um, I uh, read just, uh, I don't know if like, this was like an official study or whatever, but I, I read a blog recently, uh, and it said uh, things that people expect when they come into church. And like I said, I don't think it was a study, but it was definitely approaching as, as if this pastor had heard this is what people expect when they walk into church. People will expect music. Okay, it's pretty understood. They will expect reading the Bible. They'll, re- they'll expect congregation, community, fellowship. They even said they would expect coffee. Now, this is the part that really hurt me. People expect boring sermons. That's the only one with an adjective in front of it, and it's a negative one. Maybe that's what you expect when you come here. Well, you just wait and see. My wife thinks I'm awesome, so. (laughs) Thanks, Abby. Um, What what do you expect when you come into a place like this? I I invite you to go deeper. When was the last time that, that you went deep with Jesus? What's underneath the surface? It's surprising when your expectations are, are just completely blown away. Some, sometimes we, we expect our expectations to be, you know, not met in a good way. Like we expect to be underwhelmed sometimes. You ever been underwhelmed by your expectations? When I was, uh, I think, going in like my freshman or sophomore year of high school, my family was in Florida. And my dad was really excited because he found this incredible deal on snorkeling. Um, and there's a reason why it was an incredible deal. Some people are very, very passionate about snorkeling and scuba. My family, we're not those people. (laughs) We like NASCAR races. Uh, We like airplanes because my mom works for the airlines, and so we fly for free. It's great. Going underneath the water and breathing through a plastic tube does not, to me, sound like the most fun thing in the world. But nonetheless, at 14 or 15 years old, I'm like, okay, it's probably going to be glorious. It's probably going to be amazing. I expect that I would see something like this when I look underneath the water. But, but to my great surprise, when I looked underneath the water, this is all I saw. It's an actual picture from that day. You couldn't see a thing. I had goggles on, but the sand was just so overwhelming in this, like, three-inch deep, shallow water. And, like, they advertise it, right? You know, they've got these, like, things, come on our, on our snorkeling adventure. You're going to see seahorses. I had heard about seahorses throughout my life. Did you know that they're, like, this big? <laughs> you got to check out this seahorse. I'm like, okay, well, that's a little underwhelming. At one point, I'm like, I'm, like, barely fitting underneath the water. And I'm, like, you know, kicking my flippers and all that stuff. And eventually, I just stop because I've, I've just, I'm like a beached whale. The, the water's not deep enough. <laughs> It was so disappointing. I, I woke up the next day and I had scratches on my rib cage. <laughs> Just so underwhelming. My expectations weren't met. The worst part is I also woke up the next day with a skin infection on my lip because the snorkel device wasn't clean. <laughs> and you wonder why I'm a recovering germaphobe. All right? It's not my fault, but the Lord is healing me. Sometimes when our expectations aren't met very well, like, you know, we're underwhelmed, it 
it stops us from ever wanting to go deep again. It stops us from even wanting to try. I understand there are a lot of people who have taken a look at their faith. Maybe they've tried to get involved in Christian community. Maybe they've tried to be a part of a church before. Maybe they've been try- they tried to follow Jesus before, and something let them down. A lot of times, it's the failures of people that surround us, and it really felt like a shallow experience. And to that, I won't defend it. I'll just say I'm sorry. That's wrong. I'm so sorry that someone, and I'm so sorry if I've ever made you think that Jesus is shallow. Jesus is not shallow. Whatever your expectation is, be ready. He'll surprise you. Who is this? There are a lot of misconceptions about Jesus. There are a lot of misconceptions about Jesus in this story. Look at the faces around the crowd. Today I want to start really far back, and usually I do the opposite. Usually we start in the story, looking at the faces of the people. But today I want to just start with our faces. What's the misconception that we have about Jesus? I think one of the most common misconceptions that we have about Jesus that makes us think that Jesus is shallow is we think that Jesus is passive. A lot of us, we we think that Jesus is passive. He just lets things happen. But Jesus is not passage. He's he's not passive. He's also not a... Well, I mean, there's passages about him, and he fulfills a lot of passages in the Old Testament. But Jesus is not passive. Take a look at this from the reading today, Matthew chapter 21. It says, Jesus was in the center He's the center of attention in this giant parade. All the people around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the Lord. Or blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is the center of attention. They're calling him this really big name. They're calling on him for really important stuff. Son of David, we could do an entire sermon series on what Son of David means and how it shows up throughout the Bible. But Son of David, what you should know about it is it is this great title that signifies the Messiah, the anointed one that God has sent to deliver his people, to save his people, not a passive figure. This is a a fulfillment of prophecy. In the book of Psalms, we hear all about what's this Messiah, this son of David, going to be like. The New Testament is claiming it's Jesus, and we know that because the people are saying these things about, well, the only person that you'd say these things about would would be the Messiah. Prophesied about this in the book of Psalms, in the book of Psalms, in Psalm chapter 118, uh, the author writes, Please, Lord, please save us. Please, Lord, please give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're calling on this central figure in the parade. You have to be the one who saves us. You have to be the one who, who frees us. You have to be the one who liberates us. Nobody else will do. Save us. Like, the call on Jesus is not to be passive. Not only is Jesus not passive, we need him to not be passive. We need you to save us. Now, the word for praise God, the word for save us, is the same. Now, in the Hebrew of the Old Testament, they use a different word, but it's the same in the Greek, the same meaning. It's, it's, it's Hosanna. Will you say Hosanna? Hosanna. Say Hosanna again. Hosanna. And when we say Hosanna, we think that it's always just this joyful thing, and it's said within the context of joy, but what it cl- quite literally means is, please save now. Save now. Now, please, Now. Now, you need to know, it is said within the context of joy. Like, it is a joyful thing to say. It is saying, save us now, but you're not wondering, is someone going to come save us? It is, save us now, because I see that you can do it. I see that you can do it. Have you ever been in a situation where you just know, oh, thank goodness, I'm safe? So, uh, have I told you lately that I have a niece named Madison? I don't know. Do I ever talk about her? (laughs) Well, I have a niece named Madison. This is me and her yesterday. Oh, yeah, I know, I know. Um, tune in next week. I'll have more pictures. But uh, 
So Addison and I, we spent, we spent some time together yesterday. Uh, my brother and his wife are in town. Um, and my brother and his wife, uh, they uh, asked me to watch Addison for just a moment. And they were kind of out. And my mom was home too. And so Addison and I were hanging out. She's smiling. She's having a good time. Like, we're having fun. And I'm starting to get more and more comfortable around babies. Do not have any sort of expectations for my wife and me. That's not your business. Don't ask. Anyway, <laughs> but we're starting to get more and more comfortable around babies, right? And I'm getting more and more comfortable around Addison. I'm holding her and I'm carrying her. I'm like, oh, this is so fun. And then at one point, she looks at me. And for no reason whatsoever, she, her lip starts to quiver. And I'm like, oh, oh no. Oh, no, it's happening. <laughs> My worst fear, it's happening again. Here we go. Oh, no. And, and of course, she, she starts screaming. And then I start screaming, because what am I supposed to do? My mom comes bursting into the room, and as soon as she sees my mom, she sees her grandma, she sees someone that she recognizes and knows and loves, and she just starts shaking giddily, like, ha, ah, Hosanna, Hosanna, save me. <laughs> it was no doubt she was safe and she was fine. Like she was okay, she was safe, she was fine. Hosanna. Have you ever had a situation like that? Right? I, I need to be saved, but you have this assurance. Maybe you haven't had that before, but Jesus says, I will be that for you. In your times of dire need, I am coming. I am in the center of the parade. I am the one. I am not passive. It's the misconception about Jesus that Jesus is passive. He is not passive. Take a, take a look at this on, on the next slide. In the chapter before this, uh, Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is um, telling his disciples, here's why we're going to do it. Here's why we're having the parade. Here's why people are going to wave their palm branches. Palm branches were a sign of victory. Here's why they're going to lay their clothes down on the ground because they believe that I'm so worthy that I shouldn't be walking on the dirt, even the colt that he was riding on. Here's why we're going to do it. He's deliberate. He's in an attack mode, in a compassionate way, but he's in an attack mode. Make no mistake. We're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him, and he's talking about himself, to die. He is not passive. He is direct. He is active. He's not backing away. He's not just letting things happen to him. He knew what was going to happen to him, and he walked into it anyway. Jesus is not passive. Here's another misconception about Jesus. People say that Jesus is modest. Jesus is not modest. There's nothing modest about Jesus. There's nothing modest about someone who claims to be the Son of God. That's the highest claim that someone could ever make. I'm God. If you had a friend who said, I'm God, I would say, stop being friends with that person. That's really gross. But Jesus said, I am God. He's not modest about it. There's this passage where Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And one of his disciples says back to him, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then they said back to him, uh, oh, this is great. I mean, this is perfect. I mean, this is, this is fantastic. And, and Jesus sternly warns them not to tell anyone that he's the Messiah. We read passages like that. And we're like, okay, well, that seems really modest. It seems like he's very shy. It seems like, people don't, like he doesn't want people to know who he is. But again, you, you juxtapose that with what is happening in Matthew chapter 21. Again, you saw this earlier, but let's take a look at it again. He's in the center of the parade, center of the procession. All the people around him are praising him, praising God, praise the son of David, praise the one who is highest in heaven. Like, is Jesus just changing his mind? I think part of it has to do with timing. 
Jesus knows that depending on the timing of when he announces that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Deliverer, the one who comes to save, well, that also is going to line up with when he's going to die. So I think, I think that that's part of it, but I think that there's also more to it as well. I think that what it is is Jesus wants us to see it. Jesus wants us to call out to him. Jesus says, I will prove it to you. I'm not modest about it. You've seen the miracles that he performs? Seen the teachings that he proclaims? The things that he thought, the things that he did, the ways that he healed, there was nothing modest about it. He claimed to be God and he was backing it up. And so I wonder if maybe for Jesus, he's not just trying to pry it out of us, but instead he's allowing us to observe. Well, who do you say that I am? He gave the disciples their chance, but to us today, he asks us the same question. Who do you say that Jesus is? It's the question that none of us have been able to escape. Not just us in this room, but throughout the years, throughout the centuries. You look at the greatest pieces of art throughout history. They center on, who is this Jesus figure? You look at some of the greatest films, some of the greatest books, they explore the passages, the themes of this redemption, resurrection. Who is this Jesus? Who could do something like that? Why can't we escape him? Why can't we stop thinking about him? Why does he keep on showing up? Who is he? And Jesus isn't modest about it. Because we see in this passage, they're saying, Son of David, praise the one who's come from God, highest in heaven. And he says, yes. He doesn't stop a single one of them from calling him who he is. He's not modest about who he is. He's so not modest about it that he claims a home that nobody else would claim. Right after this passage in Matthew chapter 21, it's a really famous scene. Jesus walks into the temple and he's so angry about what he sees. Because he sees that they're calling on God to do something that God doesn't do. They're actually using God for things that God will not bless and God will not ordain. They're abusing the temple, this place of worship. They have a market there and the point is not necessarily that, oh my goodness, well you can't ever exchange any sort of trade or currency in, in, in the temple. The point was, they were selling things for outrageous prices and they were taking advantage of people. And Jesus said, we will have none of this. Jesus said, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. Jesus just said, my temple. And to the people who would have, who would have heard him say that, they would have been reading the Old, the Old Testament passages. They knew whose home was the temple. They knew who the temple belonged to. It belonged to God and God alone. And Jesus said, it's my house. He's not modest he rearranges the furniture, and I suppose that's a modest way of saying he flipped the tables over. He calls it his. And then there's this really, I mean, mic drop type moment. He says to the Pharisees after that who are frustrated with him and angry, the blind and lame came, it says the blind and lame came to him in the temple and, and he healed them, and, and the Pharisees are really, really upset about it. They're saying praise, they're saying hosanna, they're, they're praising him again. The Pharisees get really upset about it. They're like, do you hear what they're saying? Even the children... Even the children are saying, praise God. What are you doing? Don't you understand how messed up this is? You can't claim to be that. And Jesus, like I said, he, he has this mic drop moment. He says back to them on the next slide. He says, he will open the eyes of the blind and the lame. Uh, you know what? I deleted one of my slides, and I'm so sorry about that. That's why I was getting off. Sorry, Haley. That's my bad. I, I deleted one. I, I have 58 slides today, so make sure that you stay in really tight and buckled in. <laughs> Just kidding. So can I tell you what happened instead? Okay, so the Pharisees say, how can you say any of this? And Jesus says back to them, don't you know what the scriptures say? Don't you know what the scriptures say? You know what? I actually put it out of order, didn't I, Haley? Can you go forward two slides? Everybody give it up for our production team. <laughs> Woo! Sorry, guys. 
Usually it's just a typo, but today, whew, you didn't expect that, did you? Did you think it would be boring? Uh-uh. <laughs> Jesus said to them, haven't you read the scriptures? They say you have taught children and infants to give you praise. And the Pharisees would have known what it said right after that in the Old Testament, the scripture that said just that. See, Jesus, he's quoting Psalm chapter 8, and right after it says, you've taught the children and infants to give you praise, in Psalm chapter 8, it said, he will open the eyes of the blind, the lamp, no, no, forward, keep going forward now. I, I, I don't want to go backwards anymore. I, I, don't want, I don't want to fall into my traps and mistakes again. So go forward now. Really? Go forward again. I'm sweating so bad right now. <laughs> Haven't you read the scriptures? They say you have taught children and infants to give you praise. And right after that in Psalm chapter 8, it was said, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. Jesus is saying, because I can do these things, because they're giving me praise, you will be silenced. I'm God. You will be silenced. Jesus is passive. Je Jesus is not passive. Jesus is not modest. He's claiming to be God, and he's very direct about it. He is very direct about it. So who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Now, really quickly, I think that we should go into this other misconception about Jesus, because you hear that he's not modest. You hear that he's so direct. And you think, well, is Jesus arrogant? Certainly the Pharisees who are hearing these things from Jesus, they think that he's arrogant. But, but he's not. And there's actually like a really powerful hint and clue at this in the scriptures that we read for today. Again, this is in Matthew chapter 21. Look, your king, very, very high up, very, very important, son of God, as high as he can be. Look, your king is coming to you, but he's humble. He's riding a donkey. He's riding on a donkey's colt. Now, if you read the passage today and you're kind of confused, like, well, there's a donkey and a colt in the gospel according to Matthew. What's up with that? Did he ride the donkey or did he ride the donkey's baby? I, I don't understand. Well, when he was in the city, it says that he's riding the colt. But you can know that when it came to, like, the mountain, like, treacherous uh, trail that they would have been on going into the city, he probably would have been on the donkey at that point. It was stronger. But once he's in the city, he, he's on the colt. And commentators will say that Jesus is kind of, he's kind of, he's kind of trolling the system. He's kind of mocking it. He's kind of making a parody of it. See, this was an ancient tradition. Jesus was not the first person that people shouted Hosanna to when, they, when, when, uh, this, when a person would come into the city. Just two hundreds before, there's someone named Judas Maccabeus who helped Israel maintain its independence, and he came in on a steed, right? Like a war hero. And people are saying Hosanna, but it didn't last. Even in the Old Testament, where there's King David... And he's praised. And people are saying, Hosanna, they lift palm branches. It's a tradition that goes way far back. Even all of the great things from his kingship, they didn't, they didn't last either. Jesus comes in and he says, I'm the true hero, but I don't need your war horses. I don't need your medals. He comes in and he's riding a donkey. And do you know how silly that must have looked? When the people are shouting, they're excited, they're praising. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then he comes in and like, oh, he's, he's on Eeyore. Do you imagine how silly that must have looked? And can you imagine the donkey just with a tail nailed, nailed in its butt? Just, oh, oh, you know. <laughs> like he's, he's kind of making a parody of it. He's humble. You know, I, it's interesting. Most people who are immodest aren't necessarily humble, and most people who are humble 
are not necessarily immodest, right? But Jesus shows he's, he's on both. I am God and servant. I am king and savior. He's also humble. You ever been surprised about, you know, like a leadership type thing? Or, I mean, I, know, I, I don't expect leadership stuff to be like this. When I was in high school, you might not have known, I was a class vice president. No big deal. Um, for three years, I was class vice president. For three years, I never had an opponent. <laughs> My friends actually came up with a campaign slogan for me. There were two of them. One was, it's just a formality. And the second one was, no one else wants to do it. <laughs> and I thought, like, we'd be in these really intense meetings, you know? Like, I'd be sitting with the superintendent and be like, the students demand justice! We spent most of our time making posters. Humble work. It was modest. It's, well, it was important though, right? Like we made posters for causes, for fundraises. And like it wasn't like glorious or anything, but I actually did feel like we were making a difference. Now, mind you, there were people who had expectations on me as a leader. Just yesterday I was doing a funeral for somebody whose grandkids I went to high school with. And they said, yeah, you were the class vice president, right? And I said, yeah, I was. You remembered. That's amazing. They said, what happened to our 10-year reunion? Weren't you supposed to plan that? And I said, oh. <laughs> Nobody else wanted to do the job. So, I mean, come on. What was I supposed to do? Like, a lot of times we think that leadership must mean that, like, okay, you're at the front. You get the glory. But Jesus is the king who takes on the position of a humble servant. He shocks us with it. There is a conundrum to Jesus. The highest of claims and the lowest of behavior. He's not modest, but he is so humble. He rides on a colt into a city where people are saying, you're a war hero, right? Save us. On your donkey? Jesus is not arrogant. He's humble. But make no mistake about it, the last misconception about Jesus, sometimes people say Jesus is weak. But Jesus is, is not weak. Now, I don't, I, don't, I don't think it's fair to necessarily say one group of people or anything say that Jesus is weak, because I think that a lot of times, Christians, we must think Jesus is pretty weak, because Christians do a lot of freaking out, don't we? And I'm not talking about like anxiety or depression or some of those things that are happening internally. I'm talking about, we're just talking about like the state of how everything is, right? Oh my goodness, it's all out of control. This election is the most important one of all time. And we'll say it again four more years. If we don't get this figured out now, it's all done. We're to the point of no return. I asked this last week and I'll ask it again. How big is your God? I know your storms are big. My storms are big too. And sometimes when I'm in the middle of those storms, I have a hard time remembering just how big God is. But don't forget to ask that question. How big is your God? Jesus is not weak. There's another hint about this, and it shows up when we're talking about the colt, the donkey. It says that they brought the donkey and the colt to him. They threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Now, if you just read over that, you think, okay, no big deal. Jesus is riding on an eeyore into town. No big deal. But if you know anything about animals, and I'm not saying that I do, but I know people who know things about animals. If you go up to an untrained donkey and you just try to sit on it, I mean a baby donkey, when he's in the city, he's not riding the mother, he is riding the baby donkey, an unbroken donkey, and he's riding it into town and it just struts its way through. Do you realize how crazy that is? 
But do you remember who Jesus is? Remember last week we talked about how Jesus is the God who has power over nature? And so this little cult that should be entirely freaking out succumbs to the power of Jesus. And this baby donkey is at peace. I mean, my goodness, if the baby donkey can be at peace in the crowd of a million people, or however many it was, can't I be calm and at peace knowing that Jesus places his hand over me? He's not weak. He has control over this universe. He has control over nature. He is not weak. And sure, it's one thing to say he's not weak because he has control over nature, but there's also his endurance to, to persist through what he was about to experience. I mean, you know this. Jerusalem would not have been that big in those days. There's absolutely no doubt about it that some of the people who were saying, Hosanna, that same crowd would have turned on him, and by Thursday, they would have been setting up his arrest. On Friday, they would have been saying, crucify. And by Sunday, I wonder how many of them had forgotten about him. What's weakness? Weakness is just this fickleness, you know? It's just, I give up on anything that doesn't meet my expectation. It's not what I wanted right now in the moment, so I'm out. And any sort of pushback that I ever get, any sort of test of my faith, any sort of test of my strength, I'm too weak. But here's Jesus going through a crowd, and he said in the chapter before, when I go there, they're going to turn on me and they're going to sentence me to death. He knows what's going to happen to him. He knows that these people who on Sunday are saying, praise him, Hosanna, by Friday they won't love him. But he persists. And what's the thing that drives him to persist? It's the strongest force in the universe. The crowd, they don't love Jesus for Jesus, do they? They love Jesus for his power. They love Jesus for his opportunity. They love Jesus for his healings. They love Jesus for his miracles. What do you love Jesus for? You love Jesus because he makes life convenient on you? Do you love Jesus because he might provide opportunities for you? Do you love Jesus because he makes a way for you to be the best athlete, the best person in business, the best scholar? What is it? Why do you love Jesus? I mean, sure, maybe you're saying, who is Jesus? He's God. But, but why is he God to you? Is he God to you because he does whatever you want? Or is he God to you because he persists, because he's strong, because he, can do, because he can endure even the worst of circumstances? Because he's God. See, for Jesus, the entire crowd would turn on him. And what strength would it take for him to keep on moving forward? Not just for the sake of himself, but why did he keep moving forward? He didn't keep on moving forward for himself. He already had his position in heaven. He already had his sonship of God forever. He's already ruler over the universe. He can already tell nature what to do. What is it that keeps driving him forward? It's the faces in the crowd. It's the crowd shouting Hosanna. It's the Jewish establishment. It's looking down at him. It's the Roman, it's the Roman officers who are going to kill him. It's you and I who see this story today. See, the crowd, they didn't really love Jesus for Jesus. They loved him in the moment, but by Thursday, they'd forget about him. They'd turn on him. But Jesus has a love that persists. In John chapter 13, I think it's one of the most profound things that I've ever read in my life. Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and to return to his Father. 
But he had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. The strongest thing about Jesus is that his love never ends. When Jesus loves you, he loves you to the very end. The strength of his love is immeasurable. He is not weak. His love is the most powerful force in the entire universe. In Romans chapter 8, it tells us that there is nothing in heaven or hell. There is no power, no angel, no demon. Nothing can separate you from the power of God's love. In the Psalms, there's this theme that shows up over and again. It's the steadfast love of God. Whatever might come and go, God's love is there for you. The book of Isaiah says, even if my mother ran out of love for me, God's love wouldn't run out for me. In the book of Hebrews chapter 13, it says he will not leave you, he will not forsake you. He can't leave you, he can't forsake you, he loves you. Philippians chapter 1, God who started something in you will complete that thing in you. He will bring it to fruition. He will endure. He will be consistent. He will persist. And it doesn't matter who turns on him. He is strong enough. Even if he was going through this parade and people were throwing their booze at him instead of their praises at him, he is strong enough. He's strong enough. He could be riding in on a donkey, an ant, be walking on his own two feet. He is strong enough. He is not weak. He's strong. But he uses his strength for the glory of God and the benefit of his family. The benefit of his family. John chapter 6, Jesus says, those that the Father has given to me, I'll never let go of them. John chapter 10, it says, If my sheep know my voice, no one will ever be able to pluck one of my flock away from me. No one. Do you need a savior? Do you need a rescuer? Do you need a deliverer? Do you need someone to be direct, powerful, and yet humble? Willing to show his strength. Well, then you have Jesus. Just really click quickly, let me conclude with the story that comes right before the passage from today. This is Matthew chapter 20. It's right before Jesus walks into Jerusalem. It says that there were two blind men sitting by the road. When they heard that Jesus was coming that way, they began shouting, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. These two men, as blind beggars, they would have been beggars their entire life. Begging from people. Asking for anything. Can you give, can you give me something, please? Anybody. Can just Whatever you can... Share his, his help. But then they hear Jesus. He's on his way into town. So now they start shouting out to the son of David. This one that they hear can deliver them. This one that they hear who can heal them. This one who they hear can save them. But the crowd turned on them too. The crowd says, be quiet. And I know sometimes it's hard to put ourselves in the stories of the Bible, but maybe that one's kind of easy. You feel like anybody's trying to mute you lately? Are you trying to mute someone else? The crowds have turned on you. They're telling you to be quiet. I mean, I get it. There are some things we should stop shouting. Words of hatred. Words that intend to bring pain. Those should go. Those should be silenced. But no one can ever, ever keep your Savior from hearing your shouts. It says they only shouted louder. They only shouted louder. 
They only shouted louder. They only shouted louder. Their pain, the people turning on them, only brought them closer to Jesus. Jesus, you're the only one who can save us. Come on in. You're the hero. You have to have love on us. You have to save us. You have to free us. You have to liberate us. You have to heal us. Please, Jesus. You're the only one who can do this. And it says that Jesus felt sorry for them. The word for that in the New Testament is compassion. It means he had heartbreak for them. And he touched their eyes. And instantly they can see. So what did they do? They followed him. The natural response to being responded to from Jesus himself is to follow him. So when we shout Hosanna today, when we shout, save us, it's not save us and remove us. It's not save us and take away all the pain. It's Jesus, save us and give us the power and give us the strength and give us the endurance and give us the persistence to follow you through the crowd that's going to betray you. Not to end them, not to shame them, but because at your cross, you will turn them back to you. You read those stories where Jesus is on the cross? It says that they confess, this must be the Son of God. This must be Him. We don't change people. We don't bring them into a place of love by hating them. We don't do it by screaming at them. We do it by screaming to our Savior, by crying to Him, and knowing that when He hears our voice, we're safe. We are safe. So shout to Him louder. See that he responds to you, but the natural response is to follow him. Follow him through that crowd, no matter how big and scary it might get, because your Savior, who rides on a donkey, that has power over nature, and has love for you to the end, even when the rest of the world only loves you until Thursday or Friday, you can follow him. Here's, here's the truth about Jesus, and here's why you can follow him. Jesus heals brokenness. Not just the physical things. He heals brokenness. He is healing this broken world. Jesus does not just perform miracles just to show off and say, look, I'm so strong. He performs miracles. They're not just suspensions of reality, but instead they're showing to us this is the way that God always created the world to be. He's healing brokenness. And here's another truth about Jesus. He's king. Makes no mistake about it. I am king. But he's also servant. But the best part is Jesus loves you. And if you had been that blind beggar on the side of the road, he would have heard your voice too. And I get it, the physical body of Jesus is not walking in front of us right now. But his spirit is here, his spirit is present. And sometimes God doesn't give us the things that we expect or want. But you can be certain of this, God is delivering on his promises. He does have persistence to see us through to the end, to love us to the end. The thing that God has started into you, God will bring to completion, says in Philippians chapter 1. Follow him. He will heal the brokenness. He is king. He's also servant. And he loves you. He uses his power for the glory of God and the benefit of his family. You are his family. So church, let's shout it out again. You ready for this? Hosanna! See your Savior. Hosanna! Hosanna! You don't have to be afraid. Hosanna! Hosanna! He's healing the brokenness. Hosanna! Hosanna! He's restoring creation. Hosanna! Hosanna! He's replacing the hate with love. Hosanna! Hosanna! He's restoring your heart. Hosanna! Hosanna! Stand on up. Let's sing this song about our King.